Bibles, you can turn to um, Micah, chapter 6. Well, I couldn't press on in our study of Micah without spending more time with verse 8 in chapter 6, so... It's a text you don't want to ever have very far from your consciousness. You don't want to read that and then move on. It's one of those texts that must become a part of us. Why? Because it tells us exactly what God wants from us. Micah specifically excludes certain religious practices, even required Old Testament practices, required practices, such as sacrifices, from being the key requirements that God wants. Verse 6, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So specificity, quantity, extremity, what kind of religious activity is God really looking for? None of that stuff. It's not about ceremony. Even God ordained ceremony. Religious stuff can't be it. Activity. And there's a reason why. We said last time because religious stuff can be done to the letter and still come from a heart that is utterly godless. You can do all the sacrifices, do all the churchianity things, do, say all the right words, have the whole lingo down, have a, a Bible with your own personalized Bible cover on and all that kind of stuff and look really good and say everything right and go to prayer meetings and pray and do all that and it doesn't mean anything about the condition of your heart before God. Necessarily. It might be a wonderful expression of a warm relationship with God or it could be a completely external show. So that's not it. You can give money, you can bring sacrifices, you can do all that stuff. That's not it. That's not what he's looking for. What does the Lord require? Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, we said, is an immovable, immovable commitment to integrity and truth. Love kindness means to value and be devoted to love. Love as God defines it in the Bible, which is for the, always for the good of other people. That's what love is. Acting on the, for the benefit of other people. It is kindness and tenderness that does not require performance. Love seeks the good of the one loved, even if the beloved is unresponsive. God loves like that, and we are to love like that. And I'm convinced that integrity and love, as the Bible defines them, cannot be achieved, cannot be lived without this third element, without the humble walk with God. So this morning I want to think more about humility as a necessary Christian virtue, that which serves as a foundation in the soul for integrity and love. So let's consider consider several aspects of the humble walk with God. 
several things. I'm going to be bouncing all around, so you can either listen or just have your thumbs really ready to turn pages, because I'm going to jump around a lot. But the first thing you need is a recognition of your own sinfulness. If you're going to talk about a humble walk with God, you need to have a recognition of your own condition. You can't be a Christian without some sense of your need for a Savior, right? Because why would you come to the Savior if you didn't have a sense of your own sin? But what I mean here is, is an ongoing recognition of a disposition towards sin that is in all of us, that we all have it. The normal Christian life is a war between the spirit and the flesh, between the old self and the new. Galatians 5.17, it says, The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. See, a Christian has a new heart. He, he pleases, he desires, he wills to do God's will. That's what his insides cry out for. But there's another part that says, no, you don't got to do that. Let's do this instead. This is more fun, or this is easier, or whatever. And there's this war. The horrible part of it is it's all going on in the same person. It's all going on within us, the flesh and the spirit. So you as a Christian desire to please God because he gave you that desire, but your old nature is barking at the heels, trying to snip at you and pull you down and call you back to the other way. Habits of sin in mind and in body have no such desire to do what God wants, so they're pulling the other direction. There's genuine conflict in every true Christian. If you have no sense of conflict you are either not a Christian or you've so sidelined yourself with regard to the kingdom of God. You know what I mean by sidelined? You're out of the game. That you've just given up. Well, Christ didn't save us to have nothing to do. Just live until we die. That's not why he saved us. He saved us to, he saved us to do his work in this world. So we're supposed to hop to it and, and do that. I fear that sometimes some of us are just drifting. I mean, no prayer life, no vital life with God, just experiencing life as it comes. The next job to do, the next task, the next pleasure, moving on from thing to thing to thing, and just working your way through life until you drop. That's not the Christian life. Just filling out the days. That sort of person probably doesn't recognize committing sins of the flesh because it's just part of some aimless life. So that's just what I do. Well, fortunately, Paul gives us a list to help wake us up in Galatians chapter 5. He says the deeds of the flesh are evident, they're obvious, which are immorality, that's a Greek word, pornos, where we get our word pornography from. It has to do with sensual indulgence. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Sorcery isn't just casting spells. You know, you really can't cast spells. Did you know that? You really can't wiggle your nose and make things jump. and um, You can't repair glasses with a wand like they do in Harry Potter. I mean, you can't really do that stuff. Sorcery, we get our word pharmacy from it. Pharmakia is the original Greek word. And it's an altered state of consciousness gained through guess what means? Pharmacy. Drugs. That's all it is. Sorcery is just altered state is dropping acid. That's what they did it in the 60s. That's sorcery. Man, you can like see colors and you know. That's sorcery. 
trying to change your religious nature or trying to have an experience through, through medicines or through drugs or through alcohol or whatever. That's what sorcery is. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, he says, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these things characterize the world. They should not be part of who we are. And if they are, then we have this obligation to start working on them. And all of us can find some, one of these things or some aspects of these things that pull at us. Envy anybody lately? The opposite, which we should see, is in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things. That's what you're supposed to see. How are you doing on that? That's where we're supposed to be. When people see you and interact with you and they come away, there should be a kind of a, a lingering fragrance. Now, some of you do have a lingering fragrance and I've been meaning to talk to you about it. No, seriously. <laughs> no, in the sense of your spirit, the way you touch other people's lives, there should be something that, that they take away from their experience with you, a scent of this fruit, if you will. They should identify a certain quality of, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and all those things. They should come away with a little bit of that kind of registering with them. And none of us do that perfectly. There's all kinds of work to do to have this be so much a part of us. And it only comes by a humble walk with God. You cannot create this stuff in the flesh. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. You can't. You can put on for a little while. But the genuine reality of what love is, what joy is, what peace is, what patience is. <laughs> I'm so impatient about being patient. I just can't, can't achieve it. The absence of these things mean you've got work to do, soul work. And I think all of us in contemplating this can think of ways and areas that need improvement. And so you're not alone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? But you can deal with this awareness of sin. Let's say we just read something and you just went, oh yeah. How do you deal with that awareness of a need of, in your own life, sinful areas in your own life? What do you do? You've got two choices. You can accept it as, well, that's just the way I am. No big deal. God understands. It's okay. Or you can let that knowledge break you and humble you. And the latter is the right response. And that is the path laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs. The broken person is the one that gets the kingdom. Poverty of spirit is a blessed condition because that is step one into the kingdom. That's the, that's the entrance. That's the door. And you ain't going to go in any other way. You're just not going, it's not going to happen. If there's not poverty of spirit, you will not find yourself in the kingdom of God. 
Poverty of spirit means a recognition that you have no resources by which you can please God in yourself or earn his favor. Your spiritual account, you know that thing that comes in the month from heaven, the, uh, they bring it uh, down, angels put it in your mailbox and you open it up and it's got your spirit. You guys are looking at me like, you really should get one of those? No, of course not. It's, a, it's like a metaphor. <clears throat> you open it up and you look at that account. It says your spiritual bank account. And you open it up and from heaven, the bank of heaven, and it says bankrupt. It's in big red letters stamped on there. In yourself, that's what you should find. Now when you become a Christian, Jesus Christ puts righteousness into your account. So when that comes next time, and you open it up, it says, infinite righteousness. <laughs> you have, you've got everything you need in Him. In Him. So your spiritual account reads bankrupt in yourself, and that's bad, but not nearly as bad as being bankrupt and never opening it. Do you guys ever get mail you never open? Some people do that. That's a big mistake sometimes. Because if you're bankrupt and don't know it, and you keep going through and doing stuff and spending money and all that, you could be in a lot of trouble. Spiritually, you're in a lot more trouble if you're bankrupt and don't know it. So the big trouble is going around thinking you've got good investments with God in the flesh. He thinks you're just fine and he really doesn't care about all your sins. And there's no poverty of spirit because it's not a big deal. And then you find out, you wake up in the judgment day and it's like, where's the door to get in? You don't get a door. Or it's locked. Poverty of spirit might seem bad because it means you deserve God's wrath, but it's good if it draws you to Christ who bore God's wrath for you. See? Thank you. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit because they know they need a Savior. Blessed, the next line in the Sermon on the Mount is blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Now this isn't just any kind of mourning. It doesn't mean that any more than it means if you're just depressed, you get to get into the kingdom of God. It's a certain kind of poverty he's talking about. Poverty of spirit. The poor in spirit. It doesn't mean your spirit's all broken, so you get to go to heaven for that. I mean, you're not excluded from heaven for having being depressed, but that's not that's what he's talking about. He's talking about poverty of spirit, a recognition of spiritual bankruptcy. The next line, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn what? If you got it if you got a thing in the mail that said you were bankrupt, would you mourn? Same here. You're mourning your bankruptcy. This isn't some pious spiritual platitude for people that are sad. Well, you know, if you're sad, you'll be comforted. That's not what he's talking about. This is the kingdom he's offering to people. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the path to life and what it means to be in the kingdom. And the path begins with brokenness, poverty of spirit, and the next step, which naturally follows, is mourning. Mourning what? Mourning our sin. That very poverty, that's what we're mourning. The one who gets comforted is the one who mourns over his sin and doesn't think it's no big deal. Some people shed more tears over non-existent fictional characters in books and in movies than they ever shed over their own wickedness. Those are wasted tears because it's just manipulated feeling. But to mourn over your sin, sorrow for sin, can only have one effect. 
And that's part of the humility, our humble walk with God. And you know what that does when you mourn over your sin? It takes away your hostility. That's why the next phrase in the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Because you can't be hostile when you're grieving your own wickedness. So you're tamed by it. The man or the woman who knows their own bankruptcy and sorrows over their own sin has no club left to hold onto. They just don't. It has to drop away. How can I be harsh when I am guilty of so much myself? See, you can't be. Meanness and cruelty and unkindness are the results of pride and self-sufficiency. And the gentle, convicted sinner then longs for what is right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now we start to see how poverty of spirit leads to possessing the kingdom. The brokenhearted mourning over their sin, tamed into gentleness by their understanding, they long for righteousness. It's the only meal they want. It's, it's water in the desert. And you know what? God gives it to them. He satisfies their need for righteousness. God makes them righteous in Christ as his righteousness is applied to their account. That's what the book of Romans is all about. And God grants victory over sin, so real change starts to be seen in the heart. And he satisfies our hunger to be right with him. Isn't that wonderful? So we need a full recognition of our own sinfulness to walk with God, to take his hand and walk through our life in a way that pleases him and pleases us. Secondly, another aspect of our humble walk with God is related. First, we need a recognition of our own sinfulness. The second thing we need is a recognition of our own capacity for deception, self-deception. That is extremely important. Jeremiah 17, 9, what? The heart is more deceitful than what? Anything! The human heart is the most deceitful thing in the universe. That's an amazing thought. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says. So the most deceitful thing in the world is the heart. It's very difficult to understand. It's full of complex and often conflicting desires and motives. You ever try to sort out your motives? It's maddening. <laughs> Because of our sinful bent, the heart has an extraordinary capacity for self-deception. That's why you often see this little phrase in the New Testament. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Blah, 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 blah. The writers say that because we are prone to deception. Let me give you some examples. Galatians 6.3 If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. People can be quite impressed with themselves when God isn't impressed at all. That's self-deception. A little farther down in Galatians 6 and verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. I don't know. That's probably something I have to say to people more often than just about anything else. God is not mocked. You might think, yeah, he isn't going to do anything. It's sort of like people getting into cold water. You know how you stick your toe in there and, you, and then you start to get used to it so you go ahead and put it a little farther and you start working your way up. Pretty good and you're swimming around. People are like that with sin. They stick their toe in and nothing happens. 
So they mock God because they know it's wrong and they stick their whole foot in. Nothing happens. They, they, they start wading out there. Pretty soon they're swimming and nothing has happened yet. So they think they can get away with it. They mock God. Don't be deceived, he says. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. People think they can sow to the flesh and all that bad stuff we mentioned earlier, all that, that list that Paul gives, and, and there will be no consequences. Well, there, there are consequences. Here's another example. 1 John 3, 7 and 8. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So this individual is playing a little theological game. He calls himself righteous, lets people identify him as godly or righteous, righteous man or righteous woman, but there's no righteousness. In fact, the actual life is one of sin. Maybe it's hidden in shadows and people aren't seeing it all. Maybe it can't be seen externally now, but it very much defines the heart and the practice of the person's actual life. He says, don't be deceived. John is just saying the one who practices sin is of the devil. That should be obvious, but it's not obvious. People are deceived about that all the time. You hear about guys in ministry that have had long-term affairs. How, how do they ever do that? How do they climb into the pulpit the next Sunday? How do they do it? Self-deception. And John's just saying, the one who practices sin is of the devil. The one who practices righteousness, who does it, is righteous. Ephesians 5, verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral, there's that word again, that word about fornication and immorality, in no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This whole area of sensuality and sexuality is a major deception area because people think it's a little thing because it's so common, I guess. Now, in our culture, sexual sins are winked at, even celebrated in movies and television and song, and we just blandly accept it, and it's, oh, yeah, you know, that's what it's all about. So much so that it doesn't seem like a very big deal. Paul says that's a deception. That's the very thing. Because of those things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. It's a deception to think that God is winking when in reality his wrath is kindling. You see how a problem it is if you think God is winking and in reality his wrath is bubbling up? That could be a serious problem. Talk about reading the signs wrong. Here you are sitting on this little plateau getting out your marshmallows on a stick because this warm spring is coming up and in reality a volcano is just about to go off. <laughs> That's not smart. James similarly addresses those who think they can desire wickedness and follow their evil desires and not suffer for it. James 1.14 Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desires, his own lust. 
But when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then the very next thing he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. People are deceived about that. They think that isn't going to happen. Oh, you know, you can play around with sin. It isn't really going to kill me. It isn't going to do anything really bad. Okay, you can believe that, but you're deceived. You're deceived. All of this is to say that church people do have an enormous capacity for deception. If it were not so, the Bible would not have so many warnings about it. To walk humbly with God, then, means being aware of the very real possibility of being self-deceived. And that's why we must stay so close to God's word and let it cut deep, as Hebrews 4 says. Judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. To walk humbly, you have to desire to have God's heart. You want to see the world the way God sees the world. That's the whole point. How does God see this part of me? How does God see this situation? How does he, what's his perspective? I want to have his perspective. That should be the whole approach to your life. When it comes to sin, when it comes to justice, when it comes to kindness, when it comes to love, what's God's view of all of that? That's what I want to have and that's what I want to do. But my flesh is going to try to mess me up. It's going to try to trip me up. So recognize your sinful nature. Recognize that you have a capacity for self-deception. And third, be completely open to correction. Like our sister was sharing this morning, it's a blessed thing when somebody comes to you and says, you've got a problem. That is a blessed thing. Faithful, says Proverbs, are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, says Proverbs. It's true. Sinful people prone to deception need loving correction at times. All of us need that. And a humble man knows that. Proverbs 9.8 Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. So a scoffer, he's an arrogant unbeliever. He's a fool. He hates being corrected. I'm sure you've had this experience when you tried to correct somebody. Just blew up. He hates you for correcting him. But a wise man loves you for correcting him. Are you wise? Do you love it when people correct you? Why, is he, why does he love it? Because he'll be wiser still. And you have to understand something about the Bible's understanding of wisdom. Wisdom is never just knowledge in your head. Wisdom is knowledge in your head that is applied in your life. That's what it means. That's what wisdom is in the Bible. We often believe that because we know something, we're living it. I, I see this so often. I, I see it in myself. Because I know it's true, I think I've done it. It's like, I know the golden rule. I, I know it. However you want others to treat you, so treat them. So I think I've done it, because i got it memorized. But how often are we really doing that, treating other people just the way we would want to be treated? Really, how often, you know? The golden rule confronts me all the time. Sometimes I catch on, sometimes I don't. How wonderful to have someone point it out 
to you. So to walk humbly with God, we must acknowledge our sinfulness, realize that we're prone to deception, be open to correction from God's word and other people, and finally, we have to draw our strength from the Lord to do this. We have to. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He is always at our side. If you belong to Christ, the Bible says the Spirit of God dwells in you. The power for a transformed life is available for each step of that walk with God. It's available if we avail ourselves of it. But you know, the thing is, you like you, you, you have God be a part of this first step and then maybe the second step and then the third. You start thinking you're doing it on your own after a while. And then you're walking in the flesh and then it becomes a show and then all of a sudden you find yourself way down the line 200 steps later and, and God isn't even in your head. Romans 8.13 says, If you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body. You can't do it on your own. It's by the Spirit that we defeat the flesh. So don't wage war with your flesh by using your flesh. You know what I mean? Don't fight the flesh with the flesh. How do you do that? People do that all the time. You can conquer one sin with another sin. You can keep a vice at bay through pride. I beat that. I did that. You can change a bad attitude at work because you fear losing your job. You fear men. It has nothing to do with having a right heart. It's like, my gosh, I better change or else they're going to throw me out of here and I'll be out of a job and then I won't be able to pay for my this. And that. You, can, you can have behavior modification. That's not what he's talking about, though. The Christian isn't supposed to walk in the fear of men. He's supposed to walk, how? Humbly with his God. That's how he's supposed to be doing it. He'll listen to the correction of men, humbly, because that's God's ordained means frequently to confront us through other people. Even our own spouses. Like, like Jerry. <laughs> but to walk humbly, you need to lean on him. Our life is a life that is lived in fellowship with the Savior and the desire to please can't go to people or ourselves. It has to be a desire to please God with the way we conduct ourselves always, every day, each step. To walk humbly you need to lean on Him, ask Him for strength and enabling power every day. To have the Spirit win over the flesh every day. Lord, I'm getting angry. Help me to love right now. Not three days from now going, you know, maybe I shouldn't have gotten angry. That's not walking. That's reflecting. <laughs> you know, when I look back on my life, I should have... Uh, that's not the way you're supposed to live your Christian life. It's, it's the walk now. Lord, I'm getting angry now. Help me to love right now. Lord, the flesh is calling again. I need your strength to defeat this temptation, this bad habit. Help me win. Show me something fulfilling I can do with my time to take my mind off it, Lord. I need your help right now. Not 20 bottles later, six syringes later, all that stuff, you know. Now. Lord, I sense that I'm, I'm fearing man just now. I, I can feel the fear of men coming upon me. Help me stand up for what is right, even if I catch flack for it. Help me respond with gentleness 
and not go the other direction to be angry or hostile, but help me be just the way Jesus would be in this situation. Lord, I need, your, I need that help right now. That's how you do it. That's the daily walk. That's how you parent. That's how you relate to your spouse. That's how you are at work. That's how it all comes together. It's just that simple. There's no magic formulas for holiness. There's just a humble walk. That's, that's what it is. That's what God requires of you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture that so clearly lays out for us what indeed you wish from us. We need grace to do that. We plead for it. Lord, I pray that we'd all walk out of here. The first step we take out of here would be one humbly walking in your presence. And I pray that the second step we take would be humbly walking in our presence. I pray that when we get out of the car and go into our home, we'll still have a humble walk with you in our hearts. And I pray that when we wake up tomorrow, the first thing we'll think is, how can we maintain our humble walk with you today? And, and I pray that all day we'll walk in that and that we'll build habits of humility. And we know that we can only do it through your grace. We thank you for being there in us every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.